Please, uh, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter five, uh, 6. It's page 1204 in those red pew Bibles, if you haven't got a copy of God's Word with you. And just for anybody who is visiting or new to this, we have, we have been spending a, a number of alternate Sunday nights reading our way through what is a rather tricky at times letter in the New Testament. And four weeks ago tonight, we identified or we, uh, can we flip that over, Kath? We identified or we kind of drew attention to three problems. Three problems that the original readers of this letter faced. And actually there are three problems that we still face. I, I don't know if anyone who was here four weeks ago can remember any of those three. I doubt it, a month's a long time, so I'm not even gonna try to find it if you remember them. But you might recall that, that the writer of this epistle, he longs for his readers to grow in their newfound faith in Jesus. That, that's his heart's desire, that the original recipients of this letter would grow in their newfound faith in Jesus, who he says is greater, is superior to a whole group of people or things. So Jesus is superior to the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. But as he writes this letter, he's slightly concerned. He's slightly worried. He's anxious because given his reader's situation, the kind of persecution that they're under, plus the temptations that they face to kind of go back to revert to full-on Judaism, he's afraid that they may drift back or fall away from Jesus. And spiritual drift is a danger that we all face as Christians. It can happen. It does happen. We may not go back to Judaism, but we can lose our way and lapse into all kinds of other isms that deflect us from Jesus. So, for example, individualism, or materialism, or pluralism, or hedonism, or secularism, or legalism, or nominalism, or agnosticism, and then drift back. And in this part of his, his letter, which is the end of chapter five and beginning of chapter six, the writer highlights and warns his original readers of three potential problems that they face that may cause and that do cause spiritual drift. And the first is ignorance, the problem of ignorance. And what, and what he said is, and I'm just kind of refreshing what we, we looked at four weeks ago, say, what he said is, listen, you can get stuck as a Christian drinking milk whenever you need to move on to a more substantial diet. We, we, we kind of referred to this as the problem of arrested development. You know, it is good to know and go back to the basics, but if you never progress, if you never move beyond the fundamentals, if you only try to survive on a staple diet of milk only, then you're going to have a problem. That's what the writer was saying. You then may drift. The second problem he identifies, and it's, it follows, is the problem of immaturity, where you kind of get, you never get past those elementary teaching of Jesus, and so you need others to keep going over them time and time again with you. And again, he says, listen, if you don't get beyond those elementary teachings of Jesus, 
then you won't mature in your faith. And therefore, immaturity becomes another problem that can lead to spiritual drift. And then finally, the third problem he identifies is, is kind of the problem of apostasy, this, this full-blown problem of falling away, of abandoning your faith, where he says you don't produce any long-term fruit. And you're therefore left in this vulnerable position and place. And the particular fruit that needs to or should be growing in Christian lives is love. Love for God that is shown in your help of others. Look at verse 10. God will not forget your work, he says, and the love that you have shown him as you have helped people and you continue to help them. You see, if you lack love, and remember the greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor, but if you lack love, then you risk falling away. So here are three problems, he says, that can cause spiritual drift. Ignorance, immaturity, and apostasy through lack of love. Okay, so let's, let's move on. And we're going to read the, the next reasonably short section of this letter from verses 13 to 20, where, where the writer begins to talk about another couple of key qualities of Christianity. He has just emphasized love, but now he highlights two more faith and hope. Now, I know normally we we have those in a different order, faith, hope, and love, but here he kind of addresses them, love, faith, hope. Now, he's already mentioned faith and hope in verses 11 and 12, but he develops them from verse 13. But, But look at the phrase at the end of verse 11, where he says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. You see, this is a writer who wants his readers to finish well. He doesn't want them to drift. He doesn't want them to fall away. He wants them to endure and to keep going to the very end. And if you're going to do that, you need love, you need faith, and you need hope. So please stand with me for the public reading of God's word, and then we're going to sing again, okay? Because listening to me for too long, nobody wants to do that. So let's read God's word. Verse 13, Hebrews 6. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater for him to swear by, God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, and it puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Do you know, to keep, to keep going, let's, let's look at faith first of all. But to keep going, 
We need faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith to believe that, that what God has said and what God has promised about things like life and living, life and death, the present and the future, purpose and meaning, heaven and hell, all those things, we need faith to believe and to trust and to know that what God has said about all those things and promised about all those things, we need faith to believe that those are true, that those are right, and that we can depend on God. And as the writer raises this issue of faith and the importance of it, he takes his readers back to one of the great heroes of faith, Abram. Because in terms of an example, there's probably no one better. And given his original reader's Jewish background, Abraham's a cult figure to them. And so Abraham, or Abram as he was known at one time, he was once given a promise. And so the, the writer refers to this promise that he was given in those verses we read together. It was kind of a, a two-pronged promise. It was a promise that I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to multiply you. You're going to have many descendants. And the promise, as many of you know, was first given in Genesis chapter 12, but then God restated it in Genesis 22. And when God first made that promise, the writer says, he sealed it with an oath, and he swore by himself. Verse 13 says that. You see, whenever people make or take an oath, they tend to swear by someone who's greater than themselves. So you will hear people saying things like, I swear to God I'll do that. Or, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth as you rest your hand on a Bible. In other words, I swear by God, I swear to God that I'm not going to lie. But the one that's making this incredible promise to Abraham way back in the book of beginnings is in fact God. And because there's no one higher, there's no one greater than himself, it means that he swears by himself. Which means that in terms of the promise he then gives, it's a dead cert. Why? Because God can't fail. God doesn't fail to keep his promises because he is God. It's part of who he is. And that's why whenever he swears and takes an oath by himself, it's a guarantee. And so Abraham, it says, had faith. Why did Abraham have faith? Was it something himself? No, it was a faith, a persistent faith that rested on the character of God. He relied on what God had promised. Why? Because it was God who promised it. Or to put it another way, Abraham believed the promise because God was the promiser. And that's the critical part of this. But there's a couple of other critical issues to bear in mind. The first is that whenever God did make this promise to bless Abraham and multiply him, to say it didn't look likely is an understatement. We know this. Because at that point, whenever God brought this promise to Abraham, him and his wife, Sarah, had zero kids. Plus, they were getting on, and therefore, the likelihood of them ever having any in order to be blessed, in order to be multiplied, seemed rather far-fetched. It was a bit of a pipe dream. It was highly unlikely. Yet, God's word says, Abraham still believed. He still had faith. Why? Because God said it, and God was God. Let me, let me read a, a few verses from Romans 4 where Paul kind of clarifies this truth. The words are on the screen here. Without weakening his faith, 
he faced the fact, this is Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. And here's the bit. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Why? Because being fully persuaded, he knew that God had the power to do what he promised. God had the power to do what he promised. His faith rested on the character of God. And so Abraham believed. He believed that God was able, that it was God who made the promises. The second kind of critical issue is the, the actual time lag, because does anyone know the time between the original promise and the promise fulfilled, you know, the, the, between the promise made and Isaac being born? Does anyone know the time lag? 25 years, Mary. Brilliant. Yet, Abraham kept believing. He waited patiently. He didn't waver through unbelief. Why? Because God was the promiser. And his faith rested on the character of God. And, and even when he almost lost his promised son, and we don't know how long after Isaac was born that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but at that point, God restated his promise. This is Genesis 22. God restated his promise to Abraham on that mountain. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. And Abraham continued to believe it. Why? Because his, his faith was resting on the character of God. And as the writer of Hebrews draws his reader's attention to the faith of Abraham and the example of Abraham, what he's wanting to do, he's wanting to encourage his readers, listen, you too can trust God. Just like Abraham, you too can trust God and in the promises of God. And even though you're finding it difficult at the moment and you're going under persecution and you're facing temptation to revert to full-on Judaism again, even though your current situation at times feels and looks bleak, and the promises of God to you seem unlikely and as if they're never going to come true, you can believe. You can trust in God the way Abraham did. Why? Because your faith can rest on the character of God. It's not about you. It's not about how you feel. It's not about how things look around you. It's about faith in God. Who, doesn't, who is totally dependable, totally trustworthy, and who never changes, which is one of the reasons in verse 18 he writes, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope, hold of the hope set before us may be encouraged greatly. What are the two unchangeable things? God's promises and God's oath. They don't change. God's promises and God, what God promises happens and he can't lie. Why? Because that would contradict his character. So keep the faith, he says, in light of who God is. Not in light of who you are, not in light of your circumstances, but keep the faith grounded in the character of God. And if you do that, then you can hold on to hope, which he then goes on to talk about and be greatly encouraged. Now, before we do move on to talk about hope, I want us to just pause for a second and I want us to check our faith because we need to do that. We need faith if we are going to endure to the very end. If we're going to finish well, we need faith. And how do you do that? How do you check your faith? 
Well, one way is, do ask yourself this, do you believe God's promises simply because God made them? Do you believe God's promises simply because it is God who has made them? Do you trust his word simply because it is his powerful word? So Abraham's faith rested on the character of God and so should ours. And so therefore, if, if our faith is struggling and weak, then maybe it's because our understanding of God is struggling and weak. We've taken our eyes off God potentially. We've maybe reduced or underestimated God and therefore we need to refocus. We need to know who God is so that our faith can rest in him. Abraham remained on the faith track, so to speak. And what happened, according to the writer here? He inherited the promise. And the writer says, listen, see if you can imitate him, you will do likewise. Verse 12 says that. If you imitate, the faith, if imitate faith of Abraham, you will inherit the promises of God. So let's move on to then the last couple of verses in this, verses 19 and 20, where the writer has talked about love, love being shown in how you help others. He's talked about faith, having the faith like Abraham that rests on the character of God. And now he turns his attention to hope, which he describes as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. Many of you will know that based on these verses, the anchor became a really important symbol of hope among early Christians. And anyone who's had anything to do with the boys' brigade, and I know James is down at the back, an officer in the boys' brigade, but many of you will know uh, that the boys' brigade was founded in 1883, not by James, but founded in 1883, that their motto and their object is, is based on this text from Hebrews. And so there, there is their motto and, and their object, sure and steadfast, which is the King James version of those words. In the version I read, it was firm and secure. But here's the question. What's the point or the reason for the writer of Hebrews using this term? An anchor. What is it about an anchor? So you don't drift. Brilliant. Anything else about an anchor? What does it, what does it communicate? What does it say? Solid, brilliant. It's firm. It implies, it suggests stability, security. It's firm because it doesn't bend, it doesn't twist, it doesn't break when it's placed under pressure. And it's secure because it won't drag or slip in a storm, at least it's not meant to. And Christian hope is exactly like that. It is able to survive despite the strains of life and the inevitable dark clouds that gather. And so our souls, and, and in this context here, what it really means is our lives as a whole, they will get squeezed at times, and we all know this. Our lives get squeezed at times. They will come under significant stress. There will be strong winds that blow up in our faces. But we have an anchor for our souls we have an anchor for our lives. We have a hope that keeps us grounded and keeps us going. But what exactly is that hope? It, it, it's an anchor, but what is it? And we know it's not wishful thinking. We know it's not this idea, fingers crossed, it might happen, it might not happen. No, hope here is a reference to our salvation through Christ, or it's a reference actually to Christ himself. And so our hope 
is Jesus. And in what he has done for us, which is part of the reason why the writer goes on to say, it, he, he kind of personifies hope here, it enters, this anchor enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And then he says, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Now I realize there's a fair amount of debate and discussion about what exactly the writer was getting at here. But Jesus has gone into the holy presence of God as a forerunner. He's gone ahead of us. But via his death, the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom, signifying that we are now able to follow Jesus into the very presence of God Almighty. Relationship has been restored. Sin has been forgiven. Future has been sorted out. His sacrificial death has opened this way. And so Jesus is our hope. And what he has done for us is our hope. He is the anchor for the souls of men and women. Hope in Christianity is Jesus. And in the salvation that is found in him and because of him is life, death, and resurrection. And so we sang her, my hope is built on nothing less than what? than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So you think hope, think anchor, think Jesus. Throughout this letter, the, the writer has been urging his readers to consider Jesus, this one who is greater, who is superior. And time and time again, he elevates Jesus. And as he brings this kind of short little section, although it is dense, I know, but as he brings a short little section to a close, he does exactly that. He says, listen, I want you to consider Jesus. He is the anchor of hope for the souls of men and women. And see if his readers can do this, they will endure, he says. You will keep going. You will, you will, to use his language, be diligent to the very end. And so if you're going to do that, you need to do three things. You need to show your love for God by helping others. You need to have faith like Abraham, faith that rests on the character of God who will fulfill all his promises. And you need to embrace hope. You need to know Jesus, the anchor who is firm and secure. Love, faith, hope. Where are you and I with these three things today? Where are we with love, faith, and hope? Because it is these things that are gonna see us through to the very end. It's these things that will enable us to finish well.